Lord Jesus, we thank you that in you and through faith in you, there is no condemnation for us. Lord, we know this is only available through faith in Christ, but we thank you that when we stand before the throne of God one day, even though we are sinful, even though we have been rebellious, Lord, your blood covers us. You have set us free, and therefore there is now no condemnation for us. Lord, we are thankful for that great gift of grace that you have given us. Lord, now as we turn to your word, I pray that you will help us to see with fresh eyes how you call us to live in light of your grace. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Last week we talked about a question, more of a a prayer that I suggested that we pray. It's this. It says, Lord Jesus, please break our heart for what breaks yours. Break our heart for what breaks yours. Because we live in a very broken world, a world that in many ways is contrary to God's perfect life-giving design that he created this world for. We live in a world that has a lot of brokenness and a lot of pain and a lot of heartache and struggle. Where as hard as people try, we still fall short of God's standard. And as hard as we try, we can't escape the brokenness that is all around us. We do live in a broken world, but many times we fall into what's called compassion fatigue. Where we are bombarded on the internet and on TV and just through personal relationships with bad news. And because we hear bad news so often and so frequently, sometimes it's, we get kind of callous to it, that we don't, um, we don't have the compassion that we should have. Or else, because of our self-centeredness, we don't care as much as we should. That our self-centeredness makes us think about ourselves. That we may hear something bad and we think, oh, that's too bad, but we quickly turn our attention back to what's going on in our lives because we are inherently self-centered beings. So in the midst of this, we need to be praying, Lord, please break our heart for what breaks yours. And I think it's important that we have a heart that is the same as God's. God is certainly the judge. God is certainly just. And for those who don't turn to Christ, there is um, judgment one day. But that is God's to do. We are called to have compassion and care for those around us. I think it's easy for us to want to point the finger at others and say, well, they aren't living according to God's standards. Well, they're to blame because they're the ones who've gotten themselves into this hard mess because of their sin. But we need to remember the example of God, how he demonstrates his love in very concrete ways by sending Christ to this world to die so that we might live. This is a concrete demonstration of love that we are called to mirror, not not necessarily physically sacrificing our lives, but at the same time showing grace and love and compassion and care for the brokenness that's all around us. Last week we started a new series that is called Rebuild. It's all about rebuilding that which is broken. And it's based on the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. I want to give a recap of what we covered last week because if you weren't here or if you aren't familiar with Nehemiah, you can kind of feel like, okay, this is a strange name. It took place a long time ago. I have no idea what this is talking about. Well, let me give a little recap. The story that we're reading about today took place in 445 BC. So it's around 2,500 years ago. It takes place in a, in a place called the Persian Empire. Persian Empire had its headquarters in what is modern-day Iran. So it's, it's an empire that spans that whole Middle Eastern part of the world and beyond. And you have this man named Nehemiah who is there. Nehemiah, he was Jewish by heritage, 
although his entire life he has lived in this Persian Empire, and he's, he's been a servant of the king of the Persian Empire. And one day in 445 B.C., uh, some men come to this place where Nehemiah is, and these men have come from Judah, specifically the city called Jerusalem. And Nehemiah asks, how is Jerusalem doing? How are the people there doing? He has a vested interest because they are, um, they are some of his essentially extended family through the Jewish world. And they share that things aren't going well in Jerusalem. The walls are broken down. The people are struggling. And Nehemiah is cut to the heart and he begins to pray to God. to work in the situation and pray that God would do something about this. And that's where we pick up the story today. We're looking specifically at Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And I'm going to read this whole passage before we dig into it, just to give us the texture of what's really going on here. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. This is Nehemiah's, basically his memoir. And he writes, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah said, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servants have found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence that I will occupy? And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now, this is a a rich passage, a lot of action, a lot of exciting things going on here. But I want to point out, first of all, this principle that applied for Nehemiah and also for us, that to seek God's will, we need to pray. Now, you may be wondering, okay, where in the world is that in this passage? Okay, I know he prayed back in Nehemiah 1, but where do we see prayer in this passage? Well, we see essentially a reference to it in the very first phrase. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. This is a phrase that I think we would be tempted if we're reading this just to blow right past and kind of dismiss and think, okay, that's just kind of setting the, the stage here. But it's a very important, very telling phrase here. Because the month of Nisan was around what we know as March and April. Kind of straddled those two months. If we back up to chapter 1, verse 1, Nehemiah talks about the month of Kislev, which is what we know is kind of November, December-ish time of year. 
That month of Kislev, November, December time, was when Nehemiah first heard about the broken walls in Jerusalem, or at least how they were still broken. That's when his heart was broken, and that is when he began to pray. And so now in verse 1 of chapter 2, when we're zooming ahead to the month of Nisan, that means that Nehemiah has been praying for four months about the brokenness that's taking place in Jerusalem. Four months. And we see the the latter half of chapter 1 is the content of his prayer. We looked at it last week. But we, we do see in this prayer that Nehemiah isn't just asking God for things. He starts out by confessing sin. Not only the sin of the Israelites that got them into this tough place in the first place, but also Nehemiah is confessing his own sin before God. Nehemiah is also remembering God's faithfulness about how even though the situation for those in Jerusalem is so bleak, God has not abandoned his people. And then after praying for those things, Nehemiah gets to asking God for something. And Nehemiah wants to make a difference here. And so in verse 11 of chapter 1, he says, Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. So in this, Nehemiah is praying for himself that God will grant him success in the presence of the king. And this prayer in the latter half of Nehemiah 1, I think is really a summary of the prayers that Nehemiah has been praying for four months. And we also see the fervency of his prayers in that he wasn't just praying, but he was also fasting. In chapter 1, verse 4, Nehemiah says, For some days, which would actually be about four months, um, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And this idea of fasting is intentionally choosing to abstain from food for a period of time in order to focus more wholeheartedly on God. Now, in fasting, it's, it's a specific spiritual choice. You aren't fasting if you are trying to lose weight and you're cutting meals. That's not fasting in this sense. You aren't fasting if you uh, are too busy and you just kind of decide to skip lunch just so you can work on something else. I mean, yes, you are having food then, but that's not this biblical form of fasting. Fasting is when you intentionally say, I'm not going to eat for this period of time, maybe a certain meal or maybe a few days or something like that. You're not going to eat so you can really invest focus and energy on seeking God, especially on a certain matter that you're praying about. And we see here that that Nehemiah was fasting, not for the full four months straight of no food, but I think there were certain times during that time period that in order to increase the fervency of seeking God, he abstained from food and focused more and more on God, even as he continued in his service as cupbearer for the king. So he's praying for four months, he's fasting, he's doing all of this in order to seek God's will for him and the situation and to seek God's timing. Now, we live in a society that is very oriented around instant gratification. I mean, we want things now. I mean, now is almost not quick enough. We want things like yesterday. I mean, if you send an email and don't get a response within a few hours, you get kind of frustrated. Like, why aren't they responding? They should have already responded. If you send a text message to someone and they don't respond in less than five minutes, maybe less than two minutes, you feel like they're ignoring you and it's frustrating. We want things now. I mean, a few, uh, many months ago, I shared a story about how we had this microwavable meal in our freezer. And I avoided eating this microwavable meal for many, many months. I would always go to a different microwavable meal because this particular one, even though it looked relatively tasty, it took eight minutes to cook. And that's a long time in the realm of microwavable meals, isn't it? 
I would skip over the eight-minute meal and go instead to the meals that only took three or four minutes. Because we want things quick. We want them now. And Nehemiah, he didn't get an answer from God right away. He was praying each day that God would give him an opportunity in order to present this request to the king, in order to be a difference maker in what's going on in Jerusalem. For four months he prayed and waited. And during those four months, God was preparing Nehemiah and preparing the circumstances for what God was going to do. This is a great reminder for us that, you know what, we oftentimes pray and we don't get the answer we want right when we want it. But God doesn't operate on our timetable. But we can trust that he is faithful and that he is working out the circumstances and working out things in our lives according to his perfect timing to accomplish his purposes. I think this passage also in Nehemiah's fervency and perseverance in prayer is very instructive if we want to see God work in our midst. I want to see God work in my life, in our neighborhood, in our community, in our church. I believe that you do as well. But if we really want to see God work in our midst, we need to be committed to seeking him fervently. And you may say, okay, I am so busy. You don't understand. My schedule is packed. How am I going to squeeze more time in to seek God more fervently? Well, I think we have to recognize that the choices that we make with our busy schedules really do indicate what our priorities are. You will make time for what you prioritize. And so in the midst of all of our other busyness and all of our other activities, it's important that we are intentional in fervently seeking God and asking him, petitioning him, to work in our midst. And here with Nehemiah, he's been seeking God, wanting to see God work, seeking his will for God. How will you work in the situation? And there's a principle that when you see what God's will is, that we are then called to act on it. Not just to sit back and say, oh God, that's nice, but to actually do something about it. Last week we talked about two key questions that really should um, be a big part of our lives. The first question is, what is God saying to me? The second question is, okay, what am I going to do about it? What's God saying to me? What am I going to do about it? Nehemiah, he'd been praying for four months, seeking God, what is your will in this situation? And once he understood what God's will is, he understood that it is time to act. I want to show you a video. It's from a man named Francis Chan. I think it illustrates really well the importance of not just understanding what God is saying, but actually doing something about it. So let's watch this video. When I was a kid, we used to play this game called Simon Says. All right, most of us have played that, unless you're really young, because there's no app for it. it, it Simon Says is, uh, you know, you just, Simon Says, pat your head, you know, so okay, you know, Simon said it. Um, it's just, it was a very simple game, but it's so weird how in the church, Jesus Says is a totally different game. If Jesus says something, you don't have to do it, you just have to memorize it. You, you, you study it, you memorize it. You guys, it doesn't make any sense. A lot of the things we do, when he tells us to go out and make disciples, and how many people in our churches are actually making disciples? They memorized it. You know, when I tell my daughter, hey, hey Rach, go clean your room. She doesn't come back to me two hours later and go, I memorized what you said. <laughs> you said, Rach, go clean your room. I can say it in Greek. <laughs> 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 
my friends are going to come over and we're going to have a study on what it would look like if I cleaned my room. <laughs> she knows better than that. And so why do we think we're going to come before the judge one day and quote everything that he said and talk about how much we know? It's just, it's just this black and white stuff. If I just started with scripture, I'd go, here's what I would do. I'll start making disciples. So Francis Chan is obviously talking specifically about Jesus' call to go into the world and make disciples of all nations and being obedient to that call. But I think the principles apply across the board. That when God tells us to do something, then we need to do it. And that is exactly what Nehemiah is doing here. That his prayer for God to reveal what should be done here, his prayer then turned to action. Now, Nehemiah, as I said earlier, was a cupbearer. What a cupbearer is, is someone who, who tastes the king's food and drinks whatever the king is drinking, typically wine, to make sure that it's not poisoned. If it is poisoned, well, too bad for the cupbearer, and long live the king. That's the reality of the life of the cupbearer, and that was Nehemiah's role. And we see at one point... In, in early in chapter 2, after he'd been praying for four months, that an opportunity opened up for Nehemiah. It says that he was taking wine into the presence of the king, but he was sad. And, and he showed that sadness externally. And this was a vast breach in protocol back then. Because the, the protocol was anytime any servant was in the presence of the king, he or she had to be happy and cheerful. Didn't matter what their home life was like. Didn't matter what personal problems they were dealing with. They were expected to be happy and cheerful in the presence of the king. And so for Nehemiah to appear here uh, with sadness on his face in some way, I mean, it was, it was completely against the rules for what he was supposed to do. And he knew it. But I think there was some of this, it may very well have been a calculated move by Nehemiah in order to create an opportunity. I'm not sure on that. We don't know for sure if this was intentional or if it was simply the weight of, of, of what was going on in Jerusalem weighing upon Nehemiah and making itself evident through his face. We aren't quite sure here. But the bottom line is that Nehemiah appeared before the king and he was sad in the king's presence and the king noticed it. And the king knew Nehemiah very well. And asked Nehemiah, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? What's up, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah, he said, you know what? I was very much afraid. I mean, it makes sense that he was afraid. One, as we already said, he was breaking protocol here. Also, I think he sensed some of the significance of the situation. I remember back when I was um, entering my dating relationship with Shelly. I didn't know yet if she liked me or not. Uh, but I had been praying for months and months and months and months about Shelly. I was interested in her. I was kind of... Not pulling the trigger right away. Um, but I was praying. I mean, that was kind of a spiritual thing to do. And, um, you know, anyway, I was praying. And I was kind of thinking, you know, I kind of like her. And uh, I was kind of making these plans about, okay, how am I going to call her? How am I going to share my heart with her? Okay, we're going to call her and say this. And then we're going to get together here and talk more. Because I knew that neither one of us took dating very lightly. For us, entering this relationship was a very serious thing. But I had no idea what she thought. And so... So I arranged all this stuff. I've been praying. But it was still kind of intimidating and scary when the moment actually came to lay out my feelings on the table for her and to see what her response was. 
Now, worst case scenario there, at least from a reasonable perspective, is that she would say no. And you know, that would be sad, but I could get over it. For Nehemiah, though, thankfully she said yes. For Nehemiah, though, the, the negative potential here was much greater than simply Artaxerxes, the king, saying no. Nehemiah was risking not only his job, but his very life, simply by coming into the king's presence with a sad face. And he knew it. He knew the weight of the situation. I think for Nehemiah, the stakes were even higher because I imagine that he knew of a decree that King Artaxerxes made several years before, which was recorded in Ezra chapter 4. You see, back then, Ezra chapter 4, Ezra Ezra was essentially a contemporary of Nehemiah. Uh, His ministry started a few years before Nehemiah's did. But in that time... There were Jews living in Jerusalem already who were trying to rebuild the city. Nehemiah was not the first one to try to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. These Jews there in Jerusalem were trying to rebuild the city. And there were leaders within the Persian Empire who did not like it. And they they sent a letter to King Artaxerxes asking, King, these people in Jerusalem, they're troublemakers. They have been for centuries. They're going to continue to be. You need to issue a decree to stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So here's what King Artaxerxes said in his letter back to these Persian officials. He says, The letter you sent to us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and the search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful powerful kings ruling over the whole of of trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that the city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shimshai, the secretary, and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. So you see these Persian officials, they didn't like what was taking place in Jerusalem, and so they had King Artaxerxes make this decree that the Jews could no longer be rebuilding Jerusalem. And to make sure this was enforced, armed officials, military most likely, were sent to Jerusalem to force the Jews to stop rebuilding. I imagine that Nehemiah was well aware of what took place there. This may have even been some of the content that came from the men who who came and visited Nehemiah chapter 1 from Jerusalem. That they shared, you know what, the walls are still not rebuilt. Jerusalem is still in shambles. Nehemiah's heart was broken over that. But Nehemiah knew that the king, this very king that he's appearing before, this very king that he served, King Artaxerxes, had already said, you cannot rebuild Jerusalem. Yet here comes Nehemiah with this request. I think that helps us see why he was so very much afraid here. He said to the king, may the king live forever. This is a standard um, a comment in the, in, the, in the presence of a king back then. But I think for Nehemiah, it helped affirm that he is still loyal to the king. What, what this request is, why he's sad, is not anything to try to, to rebel against the king or undermine him. May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So Nehemiah recounts that, you know what, the city 
is still destroyed and his heart is distraught over her. Why then should he not be sad? But note that he's being very tactful in how he's sharing this. He never mentions the name Jerusalem here. He just calls it the city where my fathers are buried. And I think that's very intentional and very tactful by Nehemiah. He does not want to, to raise up a bunch of negative emotions inside of King Artaxerxes by mentioning Jerusalem. And so he just mentions it as this city. And so the king says, okay, what is it that you want, Nehemiah? What, what do you want here? He knows that Nehemiah wants something. And so it says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I answered the king. So we, we see that here in the middle of this conversation, Nehemiah is spontaneously praying, most likely in his mind. I can't imagine Nehemiah praying out loud in the midst of this conversation with the king. But he's praying. And I think this is very instructive for us, the spontaneous prayer. That in the midst of conversations that we are having with people, it's good to be praying. Praying for wisdom as we talk. Praying for God's work in the other person's life. Praying for whatever the situation is. It's great to be praying even as we talk. And so Nehemiah is doing that. He's saying, God, give me wisdom. Give me favor here. And he answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. So he says, I want to go. I want to be the one to help rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But he doesn't mention Jerusalem by name yet again. He's still referring to it simply as this city. But he lays out this plan. And says, Then the king with the queen seated beside him asked me, Okay, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I said the time. So we see that, that, that Nehemiah is having success. He has the king's favor. The king says, okay, go. How long will it take? I mean, he's looking forward to when Nehemiah is going to come back. But he's wondering, okay, how long is it going to take? And so Nehemiah lays out his plan. I think this is also very helpful for us to remember that simply because we are praying doesn't mean that we should just say, okay, I don't need to plan, don't need to think ahead, because God will take care of it all. I'll just respond in, this, in the moment. It shows that, and this is the case across Scripture, that, that prayer and humble planning do go hand in hand. Our planning needs to be submitted to God's will and to prayer. But Nehemiah, if he came before the king and the king asked, okay, what's your plan? And Nehemiah says, I don't know, I'm just going to, I don't know. That would not go very far with the king. The king would probably say, nope, sorry. And his attitude would probably change very quickly towards Nehemiah. But Nehemiah, he's not only been praying, but he has a plan in mind. He wants to go. And we see, I mean, he has this favor of the king. And I think in this, it's important to recognize the close relationship that Nehemiah and this king had. You see, the cupbearer had to be one of the king's most trusted people in his life. Because the cupbearer was responsible for keeping the king alive. Really the last line of defense to protect the king from poison. If, if the cupbearer could not be trusted, he wouldn't be a cupbearer any longer. I mean, the cupbearer, if he wanted to assassinate the king, it would be so easy to do so simply by, uh, after he tastes the drink or the food, to simply place a little bit of poison right in there and kill the king. So the cupbearer had to be tremendously trustworthy and trusted by the king. In fact, many times kings back then would trust their cupbearers more than they would trust their own family. 
That's especially the case back then because it wasn't uncommon for family members to assassinate the king to try to get to the throne. And so, so Nehemiah and this king had a very close, trusting relationship. Many times even cupbearers back then served as informal advisors for the king. That When the king wanted to bounce an opinion off someone, he would ask the cupbearer because he trusted the cupbearer. And this shows the importance of having a trusting, close relationship with people when we are trying to influence them for the kingdom of God. I mean, imagine if some random guy from Jerusalem went to, um, to Susa, where this king is, and tried to present a case before the king to rebuild Jerusalem. I doubt it would fly very well. I seriously doubt that that person would even get to have a hearing before the king. But even if he did, would he have any chance of actually persuading the king to change that previous decree? It would have been a very much an uphill battle. But for Nehemiah, he already had the trust of the king. And I think that made all the difference. And for us too, it shows the importance of having trusting relationships with those around us if we want to influence them for the sake of God. I oftentimes say the gospel flows best over the bridge of relationships. Their trust in our relationships with other people helps form a bridge for the gospel. And what that means is that you are perfectly positioned to be an influence for Christ in your relationships with your coworkers, with your supervisors, with your neighbors, with your family, with your friends, with your circle—I mean, circle of friends—you are put there by God for such a time as this to be His ambassador. In the same way that Nehemiah was placed there as a cupbearer for the king to represent God and to accomplish God's purposes. And so we see the power of relationship there. And so it pleased the king. Nehemiah was granted success, and he's gaining more confidence and boldness here. He sees, okay, the king is on my side here, so he takes another step. He asks the king for some letters, some letters signed by the king to give him safe travel all the way to Jerusalem, and letters to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, asking for essentially an unlimited supply of wood in order to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now, and the king granted these letters. Imagine if he didn't have these letters. This was, again, part of Nehemiah's very wise plan. Because if he didn't have those letters, imagine he, he would leave Susa. And the first government official he'd come to would probably ask, okay, where are you going? Nehemiah said, oh, I'm going to Jerusalem. What are you going to do there? I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem. No, you need to go back to the capital city. You don't have your papers. But if he were able to say, look, I have this letter signed by King Artaxerxes right here. The official would inevitably say, oh, yeah, go right on through. If you went to the, to the Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, and said, I need some wood to help rebuild Jerusalem, Asaph would undoubtedly say, no way. But if he came bearing a letter from the king saying, look, this letter says I can have all the wood I need. King said so. He's going to get all the wood he needs, no questions asked. So Nehemiah was incredibly wise in the plan that he was making, but we see that the ultimate reason why he had so much success was not merely his relationship with the king or that he's presenting his plan wisely, but because the gracious hand of my God was upon me. This is the reason why he was having so much success, because God was at work in the situation. And I think this also can give us hope and confidence in our situations. You know what? We face brokenness and challenges all around us. We look at these situations and it can seem kind of bleak, like there's no way this situation is going to turn, get turned around. There's no way this person's heart is going to get softened. But if God can soften the heart of King Artaxerxes, he can soften anyone else's heart around us. He can change any situation. 
but we have to keep praying and keep trusting him. And one of the other hopes that Nehemiah gives us here is that you do not have to be in vocational ministry. You don't have to be a Bible study leader. You don't have to have gone to seminary to make a big difference for the kingdom of God. Because Nehemiah, he'd never been to seminary. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a priest. He was a cupbearer. But God used his position as a cupbearer and used his skills, used the trustworthiness and, and integrity that he'd shown for many years with King Artaxerxes. He used those things to influence the king and to change the course of history and even eternity. And God has you perfectly placed as well. You, if you want to make an impact in the kingdom of God, you don't need to become a pastor. God calls some people to be pastors, but he calls other people to other roles. And he's perfectly positioning each one of us to have an influence for his kingdom in, in a circle, in a place that I couldn't reach, that, that other people couldn't reach, but he's placed you there just like he placed Nehemiah in this position to be an influence for the kingdom. So we see that Nehemiah is gaining success here. I mean, so much. The king actually goes over the top and says, sends military troops, officers and the cavalry with Nehemiah to protect him all the way to Judah. We do see at the end, verse 10, that there is a little pushback. Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, these men are not happy that Nehemiah is here uh, helping Jerusalem. We'll come more across this later. Just file that in the back of your mind because it does show us that when we try to follow God, there will be times of opposition. Nehemiah certainly faced that, yet God was still faithful. So we come back to the question that we've asked already today. What is God saying to me and what am I going to do about it? I think these are two of the most essential basic questions that a Christ follower can ask. What is God saying to me? If we truly believe that God is sovereign over everything, then we should understand that God can speak to us through any variety of means. I've never heard the audible voice of God. I don't know anyone who has. But God speaks to us through Scripture. He, he can speak to us through other Christians. He can speak to us through circumstances, whether positive or negative. He can speak to us uh, through any variety of means. I think that when we face something that grabs our attention in one way or another, we should ask, what is God trying to say to me through this? It doesn't matter if it's an overtly spiritual circumstance or not. It doesn't matter if it's a positive or a negative circumstance. We should ask, God, what are you trying to say to me through this thing? Because God wants to speak to us. He wants to help us to grow and to be more aligned with his will through any variety of means in our lives. So we should be asking God, what are you saying to us through this? For Nehemiah, he wasn't in church. He wasn't in a Bible study when God, God got his attention. He was simply having a conversation with some guys who just come back from Jerusalem and he learned about some broken walls. But that was what God used to grab Nehemiah's attention. So we need to be asking God, what are you saying to me? And then there's a second question. Once we understand what God's saying to us, at least to a certain degree, we need to actually act on it and ask, what am I going to do about it? I think this is one of the places where we oftentimes have a shortcoming, uh, especially in Bible studies, life groups, stuff like that, where we talk about what God says we should do. We talk about Scripture. We interpret it. But we oftentimes don't do it with an intention of actually taking it and, and coming up with concrete action steps about what we're going to do about it. We may think, okay, I need to become more loving or more forgiving or more serving. But we don't actually say, okay, in the next week or next two weeks, these are the concrete action steps that I'm going to take. 
And I'm asking you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, to hold me accountable for it. That's what it looks like to say, what am I going to do about what God's revealing to me? And so for you and for me, how are we doing with these questions? Is there one or the other one that we really need to focus in on? I think for some of us, we need to start with that first question, simply asking, okay, what's God saying to me? Because we are so busy, we're, we're going through life, and we're not actually slowing down enough to listen to what's God saying to us through people, through his word, through circumstances. You know what? It doesn't do any good to, to just be out there always doing things if we aren't actually following what God's telling us to do. I think back to when I was in vacation Bible school as a, as a little kid, probably eight or nine years old. It was this little country church. And I was in VBS one day. Um, uh, a fellow kid in, in the class had just been to the bathroom. He came back and said, there's a frog in the bathroom. This is a true story. And me, I immediately, hearing there's a frog in the bathroom, I jump up, I run out of the room, I run to the bathroom, and sure enough, there was a frog right on the toilet seat. I went there because I like frogs. And, or I did then. I don't do much with frogs anymore. But then I liked frogs. I went there, and I wanted to take care of the frog situation. Um, a few minutes later, I'm back in our classroom, and Mrs. Sublet, my teacher, says, Brandon, what were you doing? I was going there. There was a frog in there. You never asked me if you can leave. You, you never asked permission at all to get up. And, and in that moment, I recognized, you know what? I should have at least asked to go. I should have gotten permission. I acted without thinking, without asking or anything like that. I acted before any of that. And so we need to ask God, what are you saying to us before we start acting things out that we think would be good to do? Some of us need to spend more time doing that. Others of us, you know what, we know Scripture really well. We know a lot about what God's saying to us. We know what he's calling us to do. And we actually now need to take the step of actually doing it making concrete plans to put action steps in place. Because God says, you know what? Don't, it says in James, don't merely be hearers of the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And my prayer for each one of us is that we would not merely be people who are listening to what God says we should do, who are studying what God says we should do, who are, who are praying about what God says we should do, who are maybe even memorizing what God says we should do, those things are good things, and we should do those things, but not just those things. My prayer is that we'll do those things and also put those things that God says we should do into practice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, when you saw the challenges that we were in, our brokenness, our sinfulness, that you did not just sit back and say, oh, that's too bad, but that you took some concrete action steps to come to this world to redeem us, to show us God's love in very concrete ways. And I pray that we will be men and women whose heart is broken for what breaks your heart and who are moved to action to actually make a difference in the world around us, sharing the gospel with others around us, applying biblical principles, applying compassion and care and planning and prayer in a way that is going to rebuild what is now broken. And I pray that you will get the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.